0: As a preparation for our inquiry into the Hebrew Bible and its texts, it is worth our while to inquire into the history of ancient Israel and the history of the ancient Near East because the historical context in which the Hebrew Bible is given will be very relevant and very valuable in our further exploration of God's revelation and the chosen people's response to God's revelation. Now, you have to remember that the chosen people are small people. They start out as a group of nomadic herdsmen, they follow their flocks, and they are constantly harassed over questions of water, questions of land, questions of territory, important for any nomadic people. And unfortunately for the ancient Hebrews, they are caught between a rock and a hard place. They are caught between two vast river valley civilizations that have a very much larger population than Israel does, and these river valley civilizations have not only a larger population, but they have as well a tremendous amount of military and economic power. And as a result, Israel is sort of a football between ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia. Much of the history of ancient Israel is if not a footnote to the history of ancient uh, of the ancient river valley civilizations one of the parts of these ancient river valley civilizations and their history and the the fact that they are caught between these large-scale powers has a tremendous influence on the development not just of israel's politics and history but also on their theology as well so i'm going to talk about their uh, theology, and about their philosophy of history, but it's necessary in the process of inquiring into that to think always that Israel is a small and hard-pressed nation caught between two giant powers. If you can imagine a small country like, I don't know, Luxembourg, caught between two giant superpowers, they don't make the shots to a much greater extent. They are pushed around by the movements of these political elephants. Now, the... Chosen people are freed from their bondage to Pharaoh, freed from their Egyptian slavery about 1250, and there's a roughly 200-year period after they are released from Egypt, they engage in the Exodus, they move around in Palestine, and eventually settle down into the Chosen Land, uh, into the Promised Land. The result is a period of rule by judges. Now, this is a most unusual political formation. At the time, we usually see princes or kings aristocrats of some kind, royalty, perhaps a military aristocracy, but a definite hierarchical structure usually surrounding uh, superiority and inferiority. We don't see that in the case of the ancient Hebrews. Instead, for the first 200 years or so of their life in the Promised Land, they are ruled by judges. And this makes a certain degree of sense in the context of ancient Israel, because they are particularly the people of the book, Specifically the people of the law they have been given God's law at Sinai and a sort of concomitant of that If assuming that the law to be not just a religious matter But also a political and civil matter the distinction not having been drawn yet Once the Israelites get God's law at Sinai They're going to need people to interpret it and to find matters of fact and to implement that law So in the early history of Israel we find an unusual political formation judges and this political formation, unusual as it is, is an important part, an underlying part, of many of the important early books of the Hebrew Bible. Not here, specifically, not only the Pentateuch, but also things like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, right? We hear about the history of Israel, and it's a sacred history. The sacred history starts out, in, a, in an institutional sense, as the history of judges, and the people where judges are taking the place of God, judging His people, applying God's law as as it was revealed to Moses. So there's about a 200-year passage in which they're ruled by judges. After that, the people come to the judges and say, and this is in... uh, it's in Samuel. It's in the first book of Samuel, chapter 8. And they say, give us a, a king like other peoples of the world, like other nations. And apparently Yahweh at this time doesn't have an objection to the movement from judges to kings. And for that, and for that reason, the kings are anointed. and We get the line of David and we get Solomon as well. Solomon dies in approximately 924. At Solomon's death, the monarchy is split. It splits into a northern and a southern half. The northern half is called... Judah and its ten tribes that are in the northern part. The two southern tribes, which actually have control of the city of Jerusalem itself, are, the, are, are described as Israel. So we have a split in the monarchy, various kinds of factional undertakings and mark their history during this period. And what's most important in this case is that because they're almost two separate nations or two separate kingdoms now at this point, they suffer poli- uh, different political fates. In the case of the northern part, Judah, the ten tribes to the north, they are taken over by the Assyrians in 722. Now, this is very important because it's at this time when the northern part of Ju- well, the northern part of the chosen people, when Israel is overrun by the Assyrians, that uh, I, that the first book of Isaiah is written. That the Assyrian threat is prominent and very important, and this uh, underscores the plight of the chosen people. On the one hand, they have Egypt, a huge, vastly wealthy military power on one side, always threatening to enslave them or re-enslave them at any given time. There's always that threat of increasing Egyptian domination coming from the Nile Valley. On the other hand, during those times when Egypt is not prospering, there's always a difficulty with Mesopotamia, whatever ruling elite happens to be there, and they're almost always a military and a mounted ruling elite. Well, they're always a threat to overrun all of Palestine, and that means that they're between a rock and a hard place. The ancient Hebrews have Egypt on one side, Mesopotamia on another, and they're a very small, self-contained country caught between these two behemoths. So, once they escape from bondage to Egypt, they make a certain degree of autonomous space for themselves, but they're always hanging over their heads is the threat of invasion, particularly invasion from Mesopotamia, because Mesopotamia gets invaded so often. The first and most obvious of these... Um, onslaughts is the Assyrian domination of Israel. is part of their overarching plan. Eventually, the Assyrians make it all the way into Egypt, and they take over Egypt. They are one of the most important military powers of the ancient world. They are an unusually nasty people, and they are extremely dangerous. They are exceptionally competent mounted warriors. They have war chariots, and there's no way that a small nation like Israel or Judah can stand up to them Even Egypt can't stand up to them. So they don't last very long, but the Assyrians are very important in the historical development of the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's at the time when the Assyrians have already taken over the northern ten tribes, and they're threatening to take over Jerusalem itself, that first Isaiah is written. Thereafter, not only is there a problem with the Assyrians, but when the Assyrians are conquered by the Babylonians about a century later, then the Babylonians become a new threat and a new problem. Eventually the Babylonians do conquer the remainder of Israel. They take over Jerusalem and they destroy Jerusalem. This is the beginning of the so-called Babylonian captivity. After Israel is overwhelmed and conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians are brought back to Babylon enslaved and they maintain their their self-conception as a people they maintain their collective identity through the transforming power of their legacy from the pentateuch and most importantly the the power and the collective focus given to them by the prophets now we have to think a little bit about prophets and what a prophet is in order to properly understand what it is that that the prophets are doing for ancient israel Prophets emerge on a regular basis in the ancient world, not just among the Israelites, but actually all over the world. The idea of divine dispensation, which gives one specific individual special access to the will of God, is not unusual, but in the context of Yahweh, in the context of the developing monotheism that the Israelites had, the prophet is a particularly important man. The prophet might be thought of this way. In the same way that the Hebrews are a chosen people among all the peoples of the earth. The prophet is the chosen man within the chosen people. So we have a three-tiered system where the prophet is the one person who maintains that faithful, properly steadfast relationship with Yahweh that the chosen people ought to be maintaining and are not. Another important fact that we have to think about when we think about prophets and prophecy is the fact that prophets always call for repentance. They always say that Yahweh is angry with his people, and they always attempt to explain current events with reference to the people's depravity. In other words, there is always a teleology to history if you adopt the position of the ancient Israelites. Yahweh runs all events, which means that everything happens for a purpose, and that means that whenever the people fail to adhere properly to Yahweh's injunctions, when they become sinful and start to break the agreements of the covenant, Yahweh sends chastisements to them, and that gives them away a sort of, what, what I might call, an infinitely elastic bag in which they can throw every possible historical event, and for that reason, it never overburdens the system. It doesn't matter what, what, what difficulties occur. It always is has one source, Yahweh, and it always has one reason, chastising us for our wicked, sinful ways. Now since there's no shortage of sin in the world, and people started breaking the Ten Commandments as soon as they got them, well that meant that we had fertile ground here for prophecy, because whenever someone shows up and has decided that he's a prophet, well it goes without saying that there's plenty of depravity around, it gives him something to talk about. And should evil things be occurring, eclipses, earthquakes, plagues, invasions, Then we actually have the remaining part of the story. We have a prophet, we have depravity, which is ubiquitous, and we have a terrible calamity, which the prophet claims to be able to explain. So there is a considerable tradition, particularly among the Hebrews, of prophets and false prophets. Prophets emerge all the time. It is a regular thing. Most of them do not make their way into the Bible. Most of them do not come at, a, at the right time or the right circumstance or the right historical context in order to make an important contribution to the history of ancient Israel. But the major prophets do. They're at the right place, at the right time, with a people full of depravity, so it all works out. We have all the, the pieces of our story. Now, between the, say, the 8th century when the Assyrians come in, the 7th century when the Babylonians come in, and the uh, uh, 6th century when the Persians come in, Palestine is a playground for invading armies, so we have the first of the things we really need. We have a whole series of catastrophes. Large, dangerous armies moving through the Middle East, always posing a threat to ancient Israel. The Assyrians took out and conquered the ten tribes to the north. They didn't even bother with Israel and the city of Jerusalem, it wasn't big enough to take notice of. They established a sort of tributary relationship with the remainder of God's chosen people. But they, the Assyrians have bigger fish to fry. They're going to Egypt where there's some real money and where there are lots of people. They don't even want to bother with small fry like ancient Israel, like, like Jerusalem. So at the time when the prophets or the major prophets, this is uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the time when they are brought into the Bible is these centuries of political dislocation when the sacred city and when God's chosen people and when the promised land are all threatened by invaders from the outside. Now, if there are three centuries of invaders from the outside, and if you work on the assumption that all of history is providential and not a sparrow falls but Yahweh says that it must fall well then there's a reason why those invaders are there and the reason is because you the people that God has made its covenant with are wicked and depraved and doing things they know they ought not to do since they've been doing that all the time it's perhaps not the most persuasive of arguments nowadays our modern historical sense may rebel at the idea at the procrustean notion that every time an invading army shows up it must be a response to Yahweh's response to our wickedness but the time and the men and the themes were all met the right time in the case of the prophets and given this context of political stress, it's not hard to see why the prophets become increasingly important. There are many prophets in the wilderness, John the Baptist being an example, that don't get a tremendous following, but Uh, The major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, happen to be in the right place at the right time. They have a way of accounting for historical events that no one else has. And even more importantly, they have a plan. Because not only do they explain to God's chosen people that they have fallen away and that the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, whoever it is that's conquering them currently, the, the prophets have a way of explaining who they are and why they're there. But most importantly, the prophets have a way out of the labyrinth. The prophets are going to tell God's chosen people what they must do to restore their connection to Yahweh, to reinvigorate, to reinvent the covenant, to renew the covenant. And when that happens, they get to go back to Jerusalem. They get to go back to the Promised Land. God makes good on all His promises if the people will uphold the covenant, and then the Assyrians melt back into history. So there is a giant archetype for human history. There's the covenant, which fundamentally changes history. There's the falling away from the covenant because There are only two parts to the covenant, God's part and the human part, and God keeps his part. You can can count on God. That's the advantage over Ishtar, right? You never know what Ishtar is going to do. Yahweh, since he's all-powerful and omniscient and omnipotent, always is as good as his promises, and everything goes back to him. So whenever there's a falling away from the covenant, it's always his chosen people. It's always human frailty and mortality. They don't obey the divine injunctions. When that happens, God sends a prophet. He chooses a man, a specific individual, that will relate to him the way the whole of the chosen people ought to relate to him. And this faithful servant will go back, tell the people they are depraved, tell them to repent, tell them that the chastisement is either coming or that they can get out from under the chastisement if they will maintain their collective identity and avoid succumbing to the lure of assimilation with their conquerors. So, it's the context in which the prophets emerge that is all important in examining the prophets. Now, let's have a look at Isaiah. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets, and it's a particularly difficult text. The reason why the text is so difficult is that it was written over the course of two or three centuries by several different authors, and it was redacted centuries after that, In addition to the difficulties of authorship and redaction and historical circumstance, there are many interpolations within the text. So if you can imagine a sort of patchwork quilt of fabric taken from various centuries, which is sewn together to form a more or less coherent narrative. This is the way most of the books of the Bible work. They are redacted from a number of sources. They are sewn together or cobbled together to make the best story they can. On the whole, the Hebrew Bible does a much better job of redacting than we saw, say, with Gilgamesh, where there's a great many loose ends. For the most part, the seams, when they're there, and they're usually noticeable, have been carefully connected together, a much, better, a much more sophisticated job than we saw in, say, something like Gilgamesh. Now there are three parts to Isaiah. The first part is called First Isaiah, and First Isaiah is actually written by the specific historical figure named Isaiah. He's a, an 8th century prophet. He flourishes from about 740 to about, I believe his last prophecy is 701. And Third Isaiah is written about 200 years later, that's 6th century. This is the Babylonian captivity and conquest, and after the exile, after the chosen people are released by Cyrus and allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when 3rd Isaiah is written, and that's the last 10 chapters or so of the book. So, there are three parts to Isaiah, generally speaking. The first is chapters 1 through 39, which is an 8th century text. The second is chapters 40 through 55, which is one of the most widely quoted of sections of the Bible. That's mostly 6th century. And the third Isaiah, 56 through 66, is mostly post exilic. That's 5th century. Now, the content of the book of Isaiah is very various, very complex, and the symbolism is exceedingly rich. Particularly for uh, Christian readers, Isaiah is a very important text because it has many passages which are viewed as being prophecies of the Messiah, prophe- prophecies of the coming of. Jesus. um, It is sometimes called the fifth gospel. There are long passages which seem to talk about God's suffering servant. They're called the servant songs, and they have often been read as an anticipation of the Greek testament. Now, the first and most important theme in Isaiah as a whole is moral universality. And there's a faci- And what we're driving at here is that there's one moral rule that applies to everyone. And not only does it apply to the chosen people, it applies across the board. There's something about monotheism that yearns for moral universality, that, that yearns for what, what I might call the axis mundi, the big central spiritual core that the whole world revolves around. Isaiah is gesturing at that. Although he's writing in the context of threats from from Mesopotamia and threats from Egypt, he still holds fast fast to faith in God. He's not willing to play power politics. He's willing to take his chance with Yahweh. But second of all, he is trying to suggest that Israel has something to contribute to the history of the world that makes the military and economic power of Egypt and Mesopotamia pale by comparison. What Israel has to contribute is the idea of one universal moral law, Yahweh's moral law. And this is connected with the idea that Yahweh runs history. Not only is there a providential source behind all historical events, but Yahweh's power is not simply over the events themselves, but it is also about the morality and lack of morality that these invading uh, groups have. And there is a yearning, a longing, a looking towards a final day there's an apocalyptic tendency in parts of Isaiah which suggests that we're moving towards an end of history in other words what the what we're offered in Isaiah is a linear view of history which is very different from what we see in most archaic cultures most archaic cultures